Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Buongiorno and welcome. Arrivederci. Oh no. 16 of season goodbye, two of Drive-by cinema. <laughs> 16. Arrivederci. Amanda's crazy. Yeah. You could have just said ciao. That's my co-host, Paul. I'm Rick. Because ciao means hello and goodbye, doesn't it? And goodbye, like aloha. In Italian, and now in French and Spanish too. In English, it means I'm a twat, though, doesn't it, I think? This week's film is in Italian, I think, um, but not set in Italy in a mysterious... subtitle. Not all of it, anyway. Yeah, Some of it's set in Italy. But that subtitle in comes English. later. Paul. That all comes later, yeah. I don't suppose you've had the chance to look at any SCP Foundation, which we mentioned last week. No. Remind us again, remind our viewers, listeners, and me, what SCP Foundation is all about. That is what we call uh, scary pasta. Creepy pasta. Creepy pasta. So user-contributed kind of creepy stories based around the idea of every page being a separate thing or creature or object which is being kept safe by the SCP Foundation. Uh, some of it is very creepy and well-written. But quite a meta idea. There's uh, a famous one, which is, which looks like an enormous blobby bit of concrete or rebar or something. And it has to be looked at all the time. Because if you stop looking at it, it runs towards you very quickly and breaks your neck. Wow. Yeah. So they have these like guys that they get, like prisoners or something. They force them to stay in the room and look at it. Um, and if they That's like Bob on Twin Peaks. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's good. That's one of many, many, many great... Do you think Bob on Twin Peaks was scary? Have you seen the new no. Twin Peaks? No. Is there a new one? Yeah, very recently. They did a new oh Twin gosh. Peaks series. They kind of rebooted it. Was David involved? Yes. David Lynch, yeah. No way. So not just any David, yeah. <laughs> the amazing technical accomplishment of Twin Peaks was when they do the backwards-backwards... The great coffee. No, the backwards-backwards oh. voices. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Sometimes my arms bend back. <laughs> oh, you, you could, we could reverse this, couldn't we, in the podcast? So it's not, now. it's not reversed. It's not people just talking like they're speaking reversed. They act it in reverse and speak it in reverse yes. and then play it the reverse in reverse to get it going forwards. Amazing. If we thought about this, or if I'd known you were going to talk about this, we could have practiced and done bits of the podcast in, re- in reverse. We could have like used audacity to find out. What it sounds like. To say. And then we could have spoken... Oh, yeah. Now, speaking of David Lynch, weighing heavy on me for some time now, I have a confession to make. There's been rabbits. Not, not rabbits, no. I have made a mistake in the course of the podcast. Wow. And this is not a normal correction. Is this going to be a legal, uh, I know legally I... binding confession here, Richard? Do I need to get my lawyers in attendance? I know done? I'm usually very keen on exposing my corrections. <laughs> Go on. Uh, I've never been shy about hiding my corrections. Uh, I do want you to see my corrections. But um, listen, <laughs> what I what I did was not just make a mistake, not a casual error. Egregious mistake. What I did was I perpetuated a long-standing myth or sort of falsehood. If you remember when we were discussing... A lie is what it back, means. Way back, way back in episode four, season Before one. Before I seize the mace from him. Go on. When we discussed David Lynch's version of Dune, 
when we were discussing the special effects, I was very much on board with the shield effects in the original film. Yeah. You know the personal shield? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I claimed, because this is what I genuinely thought, I claimed that these were... Oh, that makes it okay. Generated. Ignorance makes it okay, Richard. I claimed that these were computer generated. Horrid Kantian, get ye from me. That they were, in fact, the first example of computer generated human figures. That's a lie. Used. It is a lie, and it's a deceptive but an interesting lie. one. An interesting one. Well, then he used to secure funding for his new movie, Richard. <laughs> no, go on. Sorry. But the thing is, right, I always did think this. It's not a recent thing. It's not like I checked Wikipedia before we did the recording. Like, for years. You know, maybe since the mid '80s, I've always assumed they were computer generated. Recently, I watched a YouTube uh, video by a team called the Corridor Crew, right. and these are visual effects artists. And they've got a series on YouTube where they get VFX artists from the industry and themselves to watch movies and comment on. And try to recreate it. Oh, it would be interesting if they tried to recreate well, it. Using they do. Technology they do. At the time. They do. Uh, no, they, they recreate old effects sometimes with new technology. That's an interesting take. I saw them do the Terminator, Terminator 2, where the uh, Robert Patrick goes through the bars, you know, the liquid form. They, they recreated that with modern technology. Wow. Uh, one of the things that I saw them do recently, actually, was they looked at both dunes, the new dune and the old dune, comparing the different effects and the different technologies. And, you know, obviously... David Lynch's Dune had all kinds of shonky effects in it. It wasn't the best for special effects. For its time, it wasn't terrible, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't as good as Star Wars, though, was it? But it didn't have the funding, did it? No, it didn't. It didn't quite right. But, you know, they recognised that too, and they gave credit where credit was due. I tell you what, they did really love what we loved about the new Dune, which was the Ornithopters. And they were totally stoked about how they did the motion blur on the wings. And they were talking about how you do motion blur. Really difficult, to, if you think about animation, on motion blur, getting it to look right as well, is very difficult to do. And they were completely blown away by how good that was. They genuinely loved the new Dune, and they liked the new shield effects, but they told the story about the old Dune shield effects. And here's what really happened. So David Lynch and the art director, they'd seen computer-generated graphics in, you know, movie form. I think Tron had been out by this stage. Oh, Tron. Oh, heck, stop it right now. And they were keen on this, and they wanted it in Dune, and they thought this would be good for the shield effects. But when they went to the special effects guys and asked them to do this on a computer, they were like, you know, there's no way. The computers of the time, the, the 80s, could not actually do that. There was no way they could do it. So, they designed a hand-drawn equivalent. Now, they did base it on, you know, the computer graphics of the day. Wow. Maybe they even rendered some stuff, who knows, but it would have taken a long time. But they got an artist but, to render it in batik and acrylics. They hand-painted the effect of the outline of all of those shield effects. On pieces of film? Yeah, but what's more, wow. if you recall the effect, in if you remember, call it back up in your mind, you'll know that you could see through the shield and it would distort everything, make it go brown and stuff. But you could see through to the rest of the room and the you know the rest of the picture behind, as it were. 
So they had to re-expose for every facet on those shields. They had to like re-expose and composite a separate bit of film um, for each shot, for each facet on those shield effects. It took them nine months of work. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of how Disney did some of his, you know, dual overlays. With, they did uh, rotoscoping with a lot of stuff. Oh, amazing! You know, just just so on the fly, invent, you know, bought rather than gadget invent, invent, inventoriness. You know, but still amazing what what Disney's his studio did. Uh, and also, just the way we kind of like we look down on. Often we look down on on uh, you know special effects of yesteryear, but. Just to remind you, know, I think we watched a movie on Foley making, didn't we? It's about somebody who has to Italy to do to become the sound effects engineer of, of a movie. I thought, what was it called? But, but in any case, uh, that was an insight to how they used to do the sound. But in terms of film editing, what you have to realize they still is that, do the sound. You know, cut and paste genuinely was cutting and pasting pieces, bits of film, taping uh, them together, yeah. taping them together with you know essentially sellotape, and then. The bit you cut, you would leave on the floor because you might need to put it back in again, kind of thing. It really was a, a very skilled but very, very labour-intensive process. And I don't think we really appreciate the effort that went into making films of yesteryear. Uh, yeah. And some of the ingenuity, you know, particularly at Disney Studios. That's my two Absolutely. Pets. Finish. Well, there's my correction then. Uh, hopefully that sets the record straight. I, did get, I got it wrong. That's because I always thought that it was computer-generated. There we are. I'm anyway. contrite. Thank you, Richard. Uh, virtual slaps in the face given. But heading back to last week, we watched Cabinet in the Woods, and we got onto meta metaverses. I think somehow, I'm not quite sure how we got there. Well, the whole movie is the idea that you know all horror movies are a reenactment of, or actual living reenactment of of the real some horror ritual of some kind. Ritual is occurring to to preserve our space in. Some sort of metaverse of some kind. And of course, Facebook has just gone all meta, literally. But, I mean, metaverses, as in the modern sense, you know, as, as you know, Facebook meta funded or Facebook funded, you know, Oculus headset wearing kind of uh, AR, VR experiences. That idea of the modern, the idea of the modern metaverse is, you know, a worldwide web that we can inhabit not just as an avatar, but as ourselves. The idea, was first developed really sophisticatedly. Do you know where, Richard? Or which which computer which computer metaverse was actually supposed to become a metaverse like what we understand the metaverse to be today? Which one? I stumbled upon this. It was it was it was Doom. Doom was designed to become a metaverse. Uh, Doom or Quake? <laughs> Not sure which one. I mean, you're talking to a world expert here. I know, that's why I brought it up, because I, I stumbled upon this, you know, I was watching it on whatever TV show, and it's like, wow, the guy who developed, I think it was Doom or Quake, did it in John order Comic. for it to be, Yes, in order, thank you, in order for it to become a real-life metaverse, or virtual-life metaverse. It's certainly true that in Quake, when you go between levels, you go through a teleporter, you know, there's like a, a gateway and you walk through it. And when you do that... You can get the system, you can get the level design to call a URL. In principle, you, it could connect you to a different server. Pretty much like clicking a web link, but you're walking through a, right. a portal. I don't think anyone ever really used it that way, though, because, for, well, for a lot of reasons. But ultimately, you know, it would just mean you could walk from one server to another 
in Quake. It's not that useful, really. You don't. No one was reading their, you know, dissertations or doing research or, you know, reading their email in Quake. So it wasn't all that helpful. But yeah, I think but I think what, it's what I'm saying is his intention Quake, was it for it to become not a computer game, but to become a living metaverse experience. You see, like a 3D operating system. Yeah. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah. Like it had a it had a command line interface. You could type commands into it. Paul, I think we should talk about a movie this week. <laughs> Let's listen to some music first, which no yeah. doubt by now you have re-edited. Oh, yeah. Well, that sounded refreshingly familiar, Paul. It did, didn't it? Look, I, yeah. I didn't think it was this part of the mo- of the of our podcast music that you particularly hated, Richard. You had a I don't about. hate any of our podcast music. Oh, you love, I love it, it dear. Yeah, just you want to, you know, bring up biting, uh, uh, biting and belittling comments. Just every other podcast about my music. My only Richard. misgiving is that we're only three tracks into the album, into like, <laughs> the, the original soundtrack Look, album. I, I, I will endeavour to. <laughs> I had some tunes that I whistled into my phone, you know, like when you go, oh, that's a good tune. I imagine this is what Paul McCartney did when he was talented, you know. Uh, I'm not talented, but I imagine I could be. Uh, and, uh, you know, you whistle it into the, the old kind of voice recorder that you've got somewhere on your phone. And they're, they're there somewhere, Richard, these little tunes. So well, perhaps I'll dig them out. And, get and those files. We'll play those straight out because I'm sure they'll be exciting. Those could be the music, couldn't they? Just you whistling. <laughs> Stop looking at me like that. <laughs> You sent me some music, and I thought you were using it as inspiration. There was one that was like uh, a lot of cut-up Picard well, you know, and Data oh, speaking. Yeah. I thought pastiche might be an approach, but obviously you don't like our pastiche-led, P-W-E-I-inspired intro. So I thought pastiche, a uh, humorous pastiche, is probably not the way to go for you, Richard, is it? You know, you being the, the executive decision-maker, yeah. the executive music editor of our, <laughs> of our endeavour here. Thank you very much. <laughs> I thought we were going to get a cut-up of all of our phrases in, in, in a track. That's what I was expecting. Any, that's, anyway. That's an idea. We can go there if you want to. This week's film is... Consequences of Love. Consequences of Love. 2004. Do you know what? I've got a correction for you right away, Paul. This is like next week's correction already. Wow. On last week's podcast, when you were talking about this movie, you said that they were on the shores of Lake Geneva. And they're not. They're not on the shores of Lake Geneva. Do you know why? Because this is Italian, this is Italian-speaking Switzerland, and there aren't very many bits of Italian-speaking Switzerland. The main one is Lugano. Lugano is it? Is it like an embattled enclave? There is an enclave. Yeah, there is an Italian-speaking enclave in completely surrounded by Switzerland, but that's not where this is. That's just over the other side of the lake. In fact, this is Lugano. This is Lugano, and it's next yeah. to Lugano Lake. It is Lake and Lugano. Yeah. Is it full of Italian speakers? Lugano. Yes, it is. Yeah, and everybody speaks Italian there. Yeah, pretty much. It's right on the border of Italy, obviously. I suppose. And here's the interesting thing: is that I've been there. Whoa! As a businessman. No. As a discreet actually, businessman. It was on a holiday. As a discreet but furtive businessman. Whoa! No, stop, Richard. It was really well, one of the first. It was one of the first holidays just with my girlfriend. I ever went on, you know, kind of thing, and we were in the Northern Lakes. You know, um, Lake Como and stuff. Very, 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 very beautiful and romantic place, actually. I'd We'd hired a car, so I had a little Fiat Punto or something. Horrible little Italian car. Not as bad as a Fiat Multiplier. 
my girlfriend, who was pretty adventur- more adventurous than me in many ways, said, hey, we Let's should go drive skiing. to... And Richard said, no, I don't want to go skiing. And spoiled the entire <laughs> vacation. And the relationship eventually. Go on, sorry, Richard. <laughs> she said, "Why don't we should go to Switzerland. We can go to Lugano, cross the border into Switzerland, go to Lugano. Okay, said I. I was just driving and stuff. So we hopped in our car. We drove up the lake side, as it were. You had Schengen passes, did you? Schengen passes. There was a border crossing, and we had. To, I think we had to show our passports. We're not, you're, you know. Just a slip a tenner in page seventeen. Raise an eyebrow as he finds it. It was fairly straightforward. You just went through. Oh, not like Vietnam then. But here's the thing. Here's the, thing. Here's the amusing story. So we wound up in Lugano, and sort of driving around looking for somewhere to park. But everywhere required you to pay for a little ticket. Yeah. And I didn't have any Swiss francs. <laughs> you don't just use euros. No. <laughs> wow. So it may it may even be before uh, the euro. I can't remember. But certainly we didn't have any Swiss francs. So I remember parking or trying to park somewhere that I'm absolutely certain I saw in this film because it was Whoa. just it was like an expensive looking jewelry shop. Like most of the shops are like the kind that no one ever would go in and use in in Lugano. And I remember sort of being outside there. And I think my girlfriend tried to go and get some change, but probably failed. And my recollection is we just drove straight back to Italy. (laughs) Having just failed to park in Switzerland. (laughs) What on earth? So, yeah, this is horribly familiar to me, this this movie's setting. But what are we doing in Lugano, Paul, in this film? Well, it's not immediately apparent. We are in quite sumptuously rendered and shot sort of faded glory scenery basically we're, we're, we're in the kind of uh, kind of hotel you say faded glory but that's what Lugano is like is it that's just All what like it looks that. like yeah very yeah. sober kind of very uh, very stylish but in a, in a way it's, stylish would be it's, stylish in the Mad Men Mad Men you know from yes. you know, that kind of era ah this is it Paul what you imagine the wood smells of beeswax well I what, mean this is contemporary what? I think this is supposed to be Contemporary, you know, it's supposed to be from 2003, 2004, but that's not there's the There's no vibes. smartphones. There's no smart... In fact, I don't think there's a mobile phone in the entire film. So you're saying the cars were supposed to be anachronistic? They were supposed to be modern in, in a movie that was representing the past? No, it, it's clearly the modern times. Those, those cars are definitely modern. Clearly. Sex Education does this, doesn't it? Intentionally. In Sex Education, we get, we get lots of modern moments that are obviously very modern ways of thinking and behaving publicly, but then we get these really old cars uh, set in very expensive mid-century modern housing and architecture, classic architecture that's probably grade two or grade one listed, you know, weird, just a, such a weird juxtaposition. But that kind of fits because I think we were saying, you know, there's no genre to that TV series. Is it comedy? Is it drama? Is it whatever? We don't know. But here you're saying it's meant to be the modern times, yeah? The cars are modern. Yeah. You're but just saying Lugano the, is look all looks like that. Looks like classic mid-century, expensive kind of beeswax, sober, sort of uh, modern, clean wooden lines, but not updated. Yeah, it's like um, there's a timelessness to it. Isn't sort there? of, it's timeless. Yeah, it's Lugano is like a sort of 1970s, what Beaverbrook's jewelers, like the yes! whole, like the whole town. Yeah, they're kind of nice because I mean, that stuff hasn't been preserved, has it? 
There's so much smoking in this film, Paul. There <laughs> he is. smokes and no smartphones. through the You're movie. Right. No smartphones. And at the point where he has to use a phone, which is rare, he picks up the hotel phone, the landline, which is a really weird kind of stylish. <laughs> but think about to 2003-2004. I don't think we did carry. Well, I know you didn't. I know I did. But I don't think many people carried mobile phones around with them. They didn't. I know because I remember I was at work. I was at work. I was doing temping. And I was in a chemical factory in Red Scar, industrial estate in Preston, of all places. And I got told off because you weren't supposed to have. You were smoking. No, no, you, I was that separately, but that's a different point. Uh, smoking in a factory. Who could imagine? <laughs> uh, but I, I had my phone on. I was using my mobile phone, which was the Sony P900. With a little stylus. Okay. And they were like, God, no, that gives off electromagnetic rays. The whole place could go up kind of thing. We've got volatile ethanol in here kind of thing. And it was really strange that they had to tell somebody because nobody broke the, brought their phones to work anyway. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And that was 2003 yeah. or something. So I don't think many people, they had mobile phones, but I don't think they carried them around like that. Like we do okay, today. so but the guy that we're following, the protagonist, is constantly very well dressed. He's always wearing a jacket, you know. Yeah, this is a kind of film it seems to me like Jolien would love. Oh, did yes. Jolien not suggest this film? <laughs> so not sure. <laughs> it is okay. There's one. There's one novel that I was really reminded of in, in a very hand wavy kind of tenuous way, which is Transparent Things by Vladimir Nabokov, and I imagine when he wrote it. He was talking about these kind of muted Swiss, swishy, kind of slightly bucolic areas of timelessness and non-specific placelessness. Does that make sense? It's like, is it, there's an anonymity to, to these kind of rich Swiss places, surely, isn't there? That it's kind of infectious. It's a liminal space, isn't it? It feels yes. liminal. And I think this movie lovingly recreated that feeling. I got real vibes, you know. The way they were just watching through the large, expensive, thick-plated uh, glass glass of the hotel lobby, the kind of yes. meaningless goings-on outside, it, it, there was an intent to make this seem like a place that had no place and had no history and had no time kind of thing. It was really well communicated, very stylishly too. Like the opening shot is, I think, almost silent, but you're looking at a really long travelator that he's... Yes. Moving down. He seems to be just hanging out in this hotel and not doing very much. I think it's trying to give us the idea that, you know, he's bored. He's literally, he's doing nothing. He's people watching. He's casting longing glances at the waitress in the hotel bar. He's spending his time in the hotel, looking out of his hotel window. Very early on, and this is a rare moment of complete levity, he watches some guy jog or walk into a lamppost because he's distracted by a pretty woman. Yes. Uh, with, I think I think it actually goes bong. the rest of the movie. Bong. It does go bong, yeah. <laughs> and he's smoking a lot, as we know. And we also learn that every Wednesday morning, he does a shot of heroin. <laughs> and he's debating whether or not that makes him an addict. I don't think it does. It's, obviously, it's under control. He only does it not, once No, he's week. not an addict. But he can't stop doing it, I think. That's psychological, not physical. Yeah, maybe so. The waitress actually seems quite flirty with him, but he does watch her meet a gentleman after work when she's leaving the hotel. Uh, but he doesn't. 
you know, he's not really trying it on with her anyway, because I think he's married. He speaks on the phone, the home, the landline, uh, in the hotel room to his he wife. He seems to be estranged from his he's, wife and his, his grown-up, yeah. growing-up kids. He's also got a sort of half, a sort of step-brother-in-law that comes to visit at some point we'll get to. At the, the beginning of this film, I think, is trying to give you a sense of boredom and ennui. Is it? Yes. It, it, it gave me a sort of mild panic attack that this was what the whole movie was going to be like. <laughs> but, I mean, you spent a lot of time in hotel rooms, possibly, as well as pointed as these. Oh, yeah. Although probably oh, not yeah, so fashioned very... as these. So, I mean, you, you must have had a sense of travelling traveling salesman kind of flashbacks. Absolutely. Here. But, you know, I've got it nailed down now these days. All right. Do you? I, I have, you know, I have the tools to survive this. So it's multi, no. multi, multi-point adapter. Yeah, I do have a multi-point four-way adapter. phone, phone charger. Very important. And I've got. He's got his wash bag with fifty mil conditioner, shampoo, shaving foam, yeah. exfoliator. <laughs> have you got it all down? I've got a Chrome. I've got a Chromecast. I put it straight in the back of the hotel TV. I'm streaming YouTube. I'm streaming Netflix. I can watch all my shows. I can just, I, I am, you know, home from home. Do you have and a 1.7 it, kilogram tent just in case everything goes tits up? Because, <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be much <laughs> to carry, would it? No, just the bottom of your suitcase, yeah. I carry a big suitcase. I, there's no point in having a mid-sized suitcase. Right? At the point where you've got a suitcase big enough to check in, you might as you well. You might as well. One. You might as well. I put do you, as much do you, stuff do you as have a small one that stacks on top of your big one or not? You just go once. Yeah, I do. I've got a small wow. one that's good for a night, like that's fine, and a big one, and yet yeah, stacks. They stack. That's right. That's my philosophy. Travel home from home. Experience travel. I think there's a point though, is in the curve where you kind of go into the I don't care mode anymore. I think you go there for maybe three or four years until you recover and think, well, no, if I'm going to be a seasons frequent traveler, I need to do it well. But recently, I've been in that dip. You know, I've been traveling a lot for twenty years. Not business travel, but a lot of travel. Some of it business, which I always get wrong because I do it so rarely. And uh, I kind of was in that dip where I went to the Philippines for two months and I just took some flip-flops, my phone, <laughs> my credit card, and my passport, obviously. And that was it. And, you know, I, and the point was I did really well out there, you know. Went to 7-Eleven, bought some underpants, a toothbrush, and, you know, disposable shavers. Uh, and did really well for, for for three months with nothing. Sure. And, and you know, if you're not going for business, then you can just you can you can you could ad hoc it, can't you? However, I think at that point it was like, well, you know, travel's easy for me and emotionally because I've travelled so much. When you have that that point where you don't emotionally need the things that you're taking with you, I think I, at that point I became really lazy for two or three years. Uh, and it, it impacted on my business travel because I, I went over to Singapore and didn't have a Singapore phone card. Problematic. I didn't have uh, an international bank card that worked. So <laughs> I was kind of like, I was in all kinds of trouble for the first time. Yeah. You were a vagrant. Yeah. I did manage to find a backpackers hostel, though. There aren't many left in Singapore. And strangely, it was really nice because rather like this film sumptuously recreates I guess the vibes of a kind of like as I was saying that a formless timeless business hotel aspect of, of Well Hills Swiss, Swiss towns this old backpackers hostel was like it was just like a piece of Singapore that hadn't really changed you know it had open air stairwells 
to all the rooms mm. kind of thing. Mm. Just so vibey, just how Singapore used to be. And what that means is that the air is just so, so nice at night and in the morning because, you know, you, your room is kind of open to, to a walkway and balcony that's just a soundscape and, and a cityscape, a cityscape and a soundscape to the city kind of thing. And it was just so nice. If you're really rich, right, you don't need luggage, do you? Because you just get people to buy all your stuff at your destination. So you like have new suits, new underpants, new toothbrush. Everything's already there bought for you. So you don't need to travel with anything. I've never really traveled with really rich people. I've hung out with really rich people. Like, you know, billionaires who import tomatoes kind of thing. And that always ends badly. Somebody at the table... Because I'm usually hanging out in a big group. I don't know these people, so I'm hanging out in a big party group. Somebody always tends to throw drinks at those people uh, in the evening. And I've hung out with really rich South Asians, and it's it's like, oh, let's go. And they're, they're usually quite boring. It's like, let's go and eat a huge German meal of bratwursts, you know, giant plates of kind of medieval-sized plates of, of meat, and then <laughs> let's go shopping for £14,000 shoes. It's like, oh, God, yeah, let's go and join a five-star gym kind of thing. I've never really hung out with them as really good friends. But I did hang out with one guy who was super, super rich. And he was in China at the Guangzhou Fair. And he was like a young American guy. He made his millions dot-coming whatever, I don't know, uh, in the second kind of dot-com boom, like early early 2010s or whatever, when everything exploded again, when everything went oh, Spotify. Yeah. Oh, when yeah, when everything went yeah, Spotify. Yeah, I'm a yeah. When everything went Spotify. Sorry, not dot-com. <laughs> Everything he, he was, you know, Spotified. He was Spotified. Yeah, everything went Spotified. Sounds like he's in the cloud, if you ask me. Anyway, like I, I don't know how you guru. phrase him. Cloud guru, or whatever. One, he met me and said, "Oh gosh, I really like your ass." And squeeze it. I was like, "Hello." Okay. That's a bit Weinstein-y. Well, I don't think it was meant like that. Like, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't like really. He wasn't really trying it on or anything. He was just. He's playing grab ass. He was, he was outwardly gay and it was a gay hello, I think. I don't think it was meant as either intimidatory or, it, or flirtatious. Was he on his way to... I think he was on his way to the Squid Games, wasn't he? He was probably one of the guys. <laughs> but anyway, he said, come over. And he flashed his black card. And he said, come over, look. We'll get some drinks in. I don't know. I just thought, well, free drinks off a rich guy. Flashed his black card. Okay. Yeah. And so he got... Amex Black, is it? I think Amex Black, which is not really much a shout about, I don't think. But it was Amex Black. Anyway, so he then got in the most expensive expensive champagnes and like got eight bottles of the most expensive champagne in the bar. It was an expensive bar. Yeah. So like for him, he just didn't... Like I went to Philippines in my knickers and flip-flops because... Because I travel too much and, was, and, 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 you know, I don't shave enough. But he, when I traveled with him for about five days, he just went everywhere and just bought everything and then threw it away afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he didn't travel with anything, but he just used it and threw it away kind of stuff. So if that's true, who buys the really, really expensive luggage that you see in designer shops? You know, the, the luggage that's like, you know, tens of thousands of pounds. Because rich people don't need luggage because they don't, they don't take any trouble with anything. Who buys it? Weird. I don't know. Speaking of luggage, this film really starts going. It heads up, as it were, for me, when he gets a delivery of a suitcase at his, at his room. And we then get some it's good soundtrack at this point. We get some good sort of techno music bops on. Again, giving it a I thought this was a little bit incongruous, actually, to be honest with you. 
It's good music. Like, it is incongruous because it doesn't fit with the time period of the rest of it. Well, the time, so now we're bang yeah. up to date because he goes down to the garage of the hotel and he hops in his very fancy BMW. And he's got a really nice kind of uh, key escrow procedure for, you know, he's like, take off the top hole in, you know, yeah. check the back of the, put it in the boot, check there's nobody around, get in the car, turn the English yeah. on. Kind of thing. Anyway, sorry. And he drives through Lugano to a bank somewhere, presumably also in Lugano. He drives in, he gets ushered through. It's not far away, is it, actually? And he, he gets ushered through into the car park, underground. Guards and stuff are helping him. Weirdly, everybody in that bank is dressed like they're living in the Vatican. Is that normal for Switzerland? <laughs> Maybe it's the Vatican Bank. I don't know. So weird. Because they supply Swiss Berries and cream. Vatican, I'm a little boy who likes berries and cream. You know, the boys <laughs> the boys receiving the suitcase are dressed like page boys from... From a medieval court, yeah. He, he then spends some time in a room in the bank while they count, physically count, the money that was in his Shit suitcase. Of money. Now this, uh, when you work in uh, software around finance business, this is like a legend that gets spoken of. That at one time, people would turn up with a suitcase full of money and, you know, pay it into their Swiss bank account or Cayman bank account. Or is that it apocryphal? It used to be true. But these days, you can't really do that. I mean, can't. no, because there's money anti laundering money laundering regu- regulations nowadays. Tell me about and it. And I, I try well, to buy a house with my own money. It's like, where did your money come from? It's like, it's in my bank account. You know, I mean, <laughs> what on earth? Anyway, sorry, go on. Well, well, I came back from Switzerland with about 200 Swiss francs in my pocket. And I was thinking the other day when I was in town, oh, Maybe I should just change this back to uh, to Sterling. I don't know when yeah. I'm going to be back to Switzerland. Who knows? But I realised when I was trying to do this, that in order to change it back, I would have to show my passport because they won't change it back. You know, you can't go to a, a bureau de change and change it without ID anymore because of anti-money laundering wow. rules. This kind of idea I don't think really exists anymore, notwithstanding there might be some unscrupulous banks who might turn a blind eye for $150 million Franks or whatever it happens to be, but it's it's a kind of long-standing old rumour that suitcases of cash would turn up. Uh, but that's what's happening here. And he, it seems that he's laundering money or helping a criminal organisation to launder money. It's the Mafia. We've watched a recent Mafia movie. We get his backstory, don't we, how it ha- eventually, I think, how he happened to be... You know, dragged yeah. into all this. He says was, he was a consultant. And he was he was on the bourse of some sort. He was trading stocks and in, in, advising people to make investments. And there was some super tanker that went super con, super fandango contangio. What is the phrase? Super super embargo. <laughs> What's it called? I have no idea. When, when but, oil prices sort of hit the floor, it was a bad investment. Super he, super contango. Investors lost a lot of money, they, but they forgave him because they understood it wasn't him conning them. They knew it was a genuine mistake. But they didn't really forgive him, did they? Though because they forced they punished him to him. stay. Yeah, they punished him. So that's not forgiveness, is it? That's the opposite of forgiveness. No, that's not forgetting. <laughs> they didn't kill. That's him. the nature of the mafia. They forget, but they, they might forget. They, they always forgive, but they'll never forget. Kind of thing. You're thinking of elephants, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, which one? So are, are the mafia afraid of mice, or is that elephants as well? Don't know. Maybe I got anyway. food poisoning at a restaurant recently. It was fish I was eating. Maybe it was the mafia sending me a message. Apparently they do that, don't they? They don't. No, well, they don't poison you with fish. They they send you a fish through the post or something. They send you a fish. Yeah. Mm. So don't use HelloFresh, people. 
<laughs> what, you think it's a mafia-run mafia, organisation? Mafia message. <laughs> but wait a minute, yeah. I ordered the fish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it seems he's been stuck in this hotel for 10 or 15 years or something you mentioned, I think. Having to do what, a weekly, I think a weekly run, I'm not sure how often it is, where a big suitcase full of money turns up at his place and he's got to take it to this bank to get counted. We see each time that uh, it's a lady in sunglasses sort of waiting in the lift for him to come out the door to pick up the suitcase and then she heads back down in the lift. He's cleaner, who's hanging around quite a lot. and She's got quite a big nose. Sorry about that, but it is quite a big nose. Uh, she, no reflection on whether it's good or bad, big nose, but it is a big nose. And uh, she finds, like, some money in the back of the TV in his room. And does well, something keeping... about it or does nothing about it? I can't remember. Oh, I think he was keeping a gun oh, in a the gun. back of his television. There you go. CRTs, were they still a thing in 2003? Oh, definitely, yes. Yes, they definitely were, Richard. Yeah. It's dangerous to keep things in the back of a CRT, of course, because they're very high voltage. That cathode tube stepped up to a lot of volts, tens of hundreds of thousands of volts, isn't that something? Anyway, not advisable. Not that CRTs exist anymore, so I think we're pretty safe there. And I don't think you could fit a, a firearm in the back of your average flat screen, could you? I seem to have baffled you. <laughs> anyway, life is very discreet. You know, he he goes about his he goes about his weekly business very discreetly. I mean, what's to stop this all continuing forever? Nothing really. I mean, he's got to do it forever. He's lost an incredible amount of money in that bad deal for the mafia, uh, and so he you know he can't ever go back to his family. He's estranged here. It's it's for life. But nothing's ever going to go wrong because he's got it down. You know, it is perhaps tedious, boring life. But he seems somehow to have reconciled himself with it. And, of course, he's got company in the hotel. We get to meet the other residents. Yeah, he's, he does some gambling, doesn't he, with uh, his neighbours in the hotel. His neighbours are two faded, glory aristocrats who used to own the hotel. Fell on bad times. Or cheated Art dealers, money. are they? I think. Yeah. Oh, did they? Now, they own the hotel, they sold it, but now, of course, they can't bear to leave it so that they, you know, they pay to stay in the hotel they once owned with a few of their art-dealing relics in their room. And, of course, the man in particular is eager to earn back some of the money that he's lost uh, and, and and buy back the hotel that he's staying in. Hence, I think, the poker games or the card games that they play every night, it's his attempt to win back money. And he regularly cheats that our protagonist out of money at the card game, doesn't he? But he's aware of it, isn't he? Because he uses a stethoscope to listen in to the old people who live, I think, next door to him in their neighbouring room. Uh, he puts a stethoscope to their door. Does that work, putting a stethoscope to somebody's door? Can you eavesdrop like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. You, can, you can certainly improve. You can put a glass to the door if you're interested, Paul. So he finds out all about their impecunious situation. And also the fact that the, the old guy's cheating at cards. So two things happen to him, don't they? Two exciting changes. Yes, there are two pivotal one. moments. One is that a couple of hitmen turn up and seems seems they've got some kind of job to do. Not him, but they've been told for some reason to stay at his place. Or so he has to safe house them. I guess yeah. because he's such a safe character, therefore... You know they can safely stay with him and, and, and not raise suspicions. So they've they've got a job to do. Do we see them? I think we see them ending the guy in the wheelchair. They go. They, the contract is on some disabled guy. And uh... yeah, yeah. There's the guy. There's the younger guy who wears a tracksuit, which is disposable. It's quite a clever idea that you just wear a tracksuit, do your job, come back, and he gets a new tracksuit out, doesn't he? And uh, and then he's 
He shares fashion. He shares a fashion sense with the the Cyclops villain in No Time to Die, kind of like Maserati, <laughs> old Maserati cars and shell suits. Who's the older guy, Richard? Sorry, uh, he's with another guy, isn't he? The, the key thing is though, they witness the suitcase turning up, and so it should be no problem because they're all family. Yeah, but he remarks, doesn't he, to the young guy about this is where all the money ends up, kind of thing. So they've clocked. They do. Yeah. They've clocked where the money is going um, and how it's getting ferried away. But nothing immediately happens. You know, we're left with that tidbit, and nothing immediately happens. The other thing is that uh, the waitress that has been seriously avoiding him. She hasn't been avoiding. They bump into each other. She's been avoiding it. Well, she's been avoiding making. She's, she's been avoiding making conversation with him, hasn't she? Pretty no, much. I think he's been not talking oh, to her more. I see. That's how I read it. Anyway. Yes. Yes, you're right. But for some reason, they start talking. Do they bump into each other? Is it like, is it like school folders on the bump in the corridor on the floor kind of moment? Or I can't I remember. I don't know. I think I think it, some something causes him to change his attitude, and he maybe talks to her a, a bit more, or starts talking to her properly. And he discovers that the man she's meet she's met or seen him meet after work is actually her driving instructor. This gives him an idea, I think, doesn't it? And what he does is the next time one of these suitcases turns up, when he goes into the bank during the counting, they say that it's like twenty thousand or forty thousand dollars short or something. And he goes, "No, can't be, can't be." Yeah, he just he just fronts it out and says, "Actually, I think you know it's your fault. I'm going to take the money elsewhere." Yeah, and the the bank manager nice is sweating there. Realising he's going to lose this customer, decides, I think, they'll swallow the loss. <laughs> so he seems to have stolen this money, because later... How does... He... Oh, so you're saying her seeing the drive, her having a driver's got to... Gives him an idea to buy a car for her, is that right? Buy a car for her, yeah. Which he does. He gives her a, a convertible BMW, and she says, how much was it? And he says it was, you know, 20 thousand or forty thousand or whatever like, well, what do you do in life you know what is it you do and your present yeah. is completely out of context with the relationship we have and debases the relationship we can have in the future i cannot accept this present she does turn it down yeah it's a bit of a, because they're just romantically gift, involved there's no going. sexual relationship at the moment you know they're just kind of like you know into each other and you know maybe meeting up for dinner dates that kind of thing but nothing is happening so to speak it's too much too quick paul I mean, she's going to. Well, I think she makes a fair point. You know, I mean, he's he's. I mean, they've got something nice and gentle, and romantic, and, and and now he's taking it to another level, but in a way that's kind of buying her love, as, as she rightly points out. It's coercive. It's coercive. Yeah, it can't. It can't be anything other than sort of. Yeah, as you say, uh, buying a, a bargain. Really, he's doing this because, you know, what else has he got in his life? It's understandable in a way. He's got to. He's got to change things up. There's a quote by the old guy, which I think I mentioned to you a couple of days. Oh, you know, is... you know why he does what he does with the waitress? It's because he is visited by his brother. That's his brother right, is, his stepbrother. Yeah, his, his brother's younger and looser and generally more sociable and agreeable, and uh, he he encourages him, doesn't he? And he comes back with he comes over to the hotel with news of our protagonist's best long lost best friend, who says, "Guess what your best friend is up to now?" Yeah. He's standing in the middle of cold winter, you know, fixing electricity piles. What a life. And our protagonist is like, he gets to defend his best friend saying, you know, he's doing okay for himself. 
Cat. Yeah, he's my and he, he he reaffirms, doesn't he? He says he is my best friend. So I haven't seen him for fifteen years, but he is my best friend. I thought that was really sweet, actually. It's the nicest part of this film. Um, so that's what prompts him into action with with, with the waitress. Is the arrival of his? I think it is his step brother in law, technically. But anyway, yeah. Um, so the next big event in the movie, though, is. The comeback of the two hit guys, the hitmen, who return to forcibly steal a suitcase full of money from our protagonist. Uh, I think what do they do? They they come to his room. They hold. They say, "Don't look head. in the mirror when he's facing the mirror. Don't look who That's I right. am in, yeah. in highly recognisable voices." So he knows who they are anyway without looking. You know, but. give us the keys and the key code. And he hands over the car keys and the key code, and they start to. Uh, to go down to the uh, car in the basement. He, he tries to head them off, though, doesn't he? He knows where the electricity is for the lift, and he turns a lift off. He gets his gun from his Clever. television. Very quick thinking. Yeah. Maybe yeah, he planned he, this. He pl- I think he I think he had like a a you know a contingency plan in case it ever happened. But he works pretty quickly. Yeah. He runs down the stairs while they're waiting for the lift, <laughs> and he goes to the basement first. So when they eventually get there, try and get in the car. He's already in the car. And he shoots them. He shoots them through the window of the car. Kills them, both. Disposes of them, disposes of them in the car, and then gets another car. Uh, but he was told by the guy that as soon as they leave, he has to call his mafia handler straight away to try and convince him that it wasn't him who took the money, because apparently these guys are the cousins or something of the the mafia boss. That, They're all family. That, and so he does this. He goes back up to his room, picks up his hotel landline again, his stylish hotel phone, and he speaks to the guy he's supposed to speak to. And there's a strange, a strange moment where he gets told to come immediately to Milan or wherever it is to, to see the bosses. And he says, I'll be there in two days. No, come immediately. I wasn't quite sure what that was about. Uh, and then we see a sequence where his girlfriend, is, who's finally accepted the car, and I think they've possibly consummated their relationship as well. Crashes it into a rice field, weirdly. Yeah, she tr- she's driving really quickly because she's a new driver and it's a fast BMW. She's heading back for their birthday party or something like that. That's right. She planned to take him out for his... I think it was his birthday. His birthday, okay. She was taking him out on a treat. And, yeah, she skids off the road and she crashes into a, a rice field. Oh, it could be for risotto, couldn't it? No, it, but it's a tractor she hits something, isn't she? Isn't it? And we're given to understand she's possibly dead. As it turns out, she's not. Oh, I thought she was. Not at the end, no. no. Oh, that's nice. Meanwhile, our protagonist is boarding a flight to Milan. And he arrives at the airport and he's met by... Lots of very powerful people in the organisation that drive Fiat Unos and Fiat Pandas. (laughs) Which I thought was... That seems to be authentic, you know. If they're in the town... Where they're from, obviously, it's going to be crawling with police and they've got to, like, drive grubby old cars kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, they drive him not very far to an airport hotel. And then they go to atmospheric mafia location number one, which is car park, obviously. Uh, they, they put him in a hotel. They're waiting, looking out at the car park, and they're seeing all these other cars arrive with more mafiosa in them. And then they escort him down, down the stairs in the hotel to a conference room some conference was on, I don't know. Somehow the Mafia are using it now. And he meets with the Mafia They have front companies. And, uh, true. 
he gets sort of interrogated about what happened and he explains that you know these guys came and uh, and stole it and describes who it was and uh, his handler was the guy they were the cousins of I think no chance there then he's then being it's not quite there's an index clear. List, isn't there corruption in different countries which there is an index yeah. which we must be climbing up really quickly <laughs> So he's, the mafia heavies are now, the mafia heavies are now taking him somewhere else, aren't they? They're driving him a car. Atmospheric location number two, building site. He's holding out on telling them where the suitcase is. This is the key thing, isn't it? That so it transpires that he killed both of these guys, but he hasn't given the money up, and he's just come back to explain, and he's holding back on where the money is. I think he probably realizes that it's maybe the only thing keeping him alive, but he doesn't really work out that way because. The last scene of the movie, I believe, is he is now tied up and hung on a crane in a quarry, and he's dangling over a big uh, sort of skip full of wet concrete, and the crane lowers him into the wet concrete, and they're forcing him, trying to get him to tell him where the suitcase full of money is, uh, and they lower him in. He doesn't speak. Does he? he doesn't it doesn't reveal. So the last scene of the movie is him going under completely submerged in the concrete. So the reason that uh, he leaves for the airport early is because of her car crash, you know. They've neither got mobile phones. Can't get through to her if they had a mobile and phone or not. Yeah. And he would have stayed for the birthday party because she doesn't turn up because she had a car crash. Therefore he goes to leave for you know to to, to, to meet the mafia about about talking about the situation of the lost money and uh, the, the attempt to steal the, the suitcase kind of thing. So the first thing to say is that's the kind of sealed fate kind of thing, this fatalistic this fatalistic turn that occurs. The second thing is, I think, he's supposed to conclude at the end that he's left the money to the old couple in the hotel. Oh, no, that's right, he does. Yeah, you see it. Yeah, he gives it to them, doesn't he? Yeah. That's absolutely right. There's the last scene of the movie is the old couple opening that suitcase. So there's like a seal fate, fatalism in, in the juxtapositioning and interplay of random plot events, you know, unfortunate coincidences that occur uh, and, uh, you know, sort of cross paths that occur in this. Whereas, you know, if she turned up at the time, then maybe he wouldn't have gone to see them anyway. But yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's a sense of inevitability in there, you know, that he's just not going to it's fate. He's not going to reveal where the money is, and so it's going to pass to these this old couple who who are in straitened circumstances. They're going to be able to buy back the hotel, and then finally we cut to his mate who's on a hillside repairing electricity pylons. Yeah, oh, that is quite a touching scene. Yeah, that's the, that is the final shot of the movie. So, what do you think about all this mafia stuff? You know, we've seen two movies recently that are mafia related. Um, I'm not a fan of the gangster movies full stop, if I'm honest. I don't really like this idea of rule by coercion and violence and criminal enterprise. I I find that unpleasant. And particularly so in this movie. You know, the sense that... This wasn't a mafia movie, was it? it? No. This was an existentialist reflection, wasn't it, I think? Sure. But it... it, Sumptuously shot. It uses the mafia as kind of, you know, a deus ex machina. As, it you know, does, something, yes. They can't be beaten. You know, they're going to kill you if you cross them. 
and perhaps that's presented without judgment, but I don't like this notion. I don't. I, that, I, I, I don't think it's true in North Italy. You know, I don't. But think, particularly, right? But in in, in the, the rich industrial this. towns or post-industrial towns up there, you know, the, the, the reach of the math here isn't that extensive. Look, look, right? When they're at a hotel, right? There's a scene where your bloke is being walked down from the hotel room overlooking the car park down to the conference room in the basement. And he has to go through the corridors and down some stairs and through some more corridors. And with an increasing sense of menace, you see all these mafia guys hanging out, lining the corridor, like every 10 feet, you know. And then the the rest of them are in that conference room. So this film lives in a universe where the mafia have kind of like a choreographer who, like, you stand there, 10 feet, another one there, 10 feet. Now just wait until he comes down, places people. Come on, we need to look menacing. <laughs> I don't think that's how criminal organisations work. I don't think that's how criminal thugs would comport themselves. And it's all part of this theatre about criminal organisations and stuff, which loads and loads and loads of movies bend over backwards doing. And I find annoying, unpleasant and unrealistic. I think it's silly. So, yeah, I, I think there's a movie trope, isn't there, where, like, often, like, they'll show societal infection as a human body infection, or they'll have those black dendrite tree things growing through somebody's limbs. Have you seen that kind of thing? Yeah. And, like, what the fuck is this got to do? Well, no, like, the mafia's often represented as this, 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 this black dendrite thing, this, you know, this, um, this... Like in Stranger Things, you know, this it thing. Black that, Dendrites, by the way. Great name for a band. A heavy just, metal you know, band. <laughs> I think in Stranger Things is explicit. Isn't it? it crawls across. It's in the walls and crawls everywhere kind of thing, you know. And But I think in Southern Italy, for periods, there there was a sense. It was like a cancer in that it was in every every single part of society. But I don't think that's the case and hasn't been the case for maybe 20 or 25 years but I understand that it, you know the, the presence of the mafia is becoming stronger in Southern Italy these days but do they have a standing in the corridor choreographer no I mean it's not like they can <laughs> it's, it's not they don't control society in that way do they no I don't think so but they can threaten judges at critical moments you see yeah you absolutely. see what I'm saying you know if you're, gonna, if you're going to the corner shop to buy bread it's very unlikely they're going to impact on the price of the bread that you're buying, apart from the fact they may have protection records for that shop, you know. But in terms of your, in terms of the moment that you buy the bread in that instantaneous moment, there's going to be no change in the in the price of. They're not going to kick your change to the floor, kind of thing, ever, are they? You know, it just doesn't work like that. If you've got the organisational skills to run a criminal enterprise like the mafia, why not organise a proper business? They often do, you know. Do something legitimate. <laughs> So this is it. It's the idea. I, I think you know the nature of the, the mafia, like many of the Chinese brotherhoods, was formed as a genuine brotherhood for good. You see, it persists perhaps where other criminal enterprises wouldn't persist. Right. Well, I'm going to score this movie whether you like it or not. Yeah, go on. So let's talk about acting, Paul. The acting was great. You know, I mean, this this isn't an art movie, is it? It's not art house in any sense. Uh, but it, it has pretensions. It does have pretensions. Yeah. But it has pretensions to be kind of like a better shot than it needs to be because it is just a, a slow burn thriller, you might say. Yeah, yeah. 
or slow burn suspense kind of thing, uh, kind of like a very simplified whodunit. Uh, and for for what it was and for what it needed to be, I thought the acting was good. I thought the lead was particularly strong. The waitress was really good. I thought she she played it. But because of its nature, like you know, slow slow top slow clocks ticking on a wall, there wasn't much in terms of electric dialogue, was there? So it, it was more about how do the actors manage to comport themselves and look like they were being bored in a very boring place and they did that quite well so but there's a limit to how you can score that beyond seven i don't think uh yeah seven was the number i had in mind as well so you read my mind get out of my mind what's our next category then read that plot oh yeah okay plot i like this nice twists i don't like the mafia shit i understand what you're saying it's not a mafia movie but they are in it but yeah, there's, there are some nice twists, and I love. But like you say, they're the, there for a convenient. They're there. I think you're supposed to see them there as a convenient Deus Ex Machina. I don't think it's an attempt to portray the mafia realistically. Surely, no. Okay. I don't think. But then you see that's the problem because it it presents itself as being realist and art house, and it's none of those things. And so, at, at the same time, I can understand why you might object to a movie that's shot in such a way, involving the mafia. In, in, in kind of like the cartoon templates that they're introduced, but yeah, being lowered into concrete is a terrible way to die. I mean, yeah. for one thing, you suffocate. For another thing, the concrete hardens. For another thing, when it cures, it gives off heat. It's exothermic. And finally, when it's wet, it's caustic. So horrible. I don't know which one to get you first. Probably suffocation. Anyway, for that reason. Anyway, plot. The slow suffocation of this plot. <laughs> I'll give it a six. Yeah, I take a ball what you say, but I, I thought generally the twists were quite enjoyable. And, you know, the pivotal moments were pivotal moments. And it, it was quite well crafted, so I'm going to score a seven. Okay. So this quasi art movie. Oh, we're using quasi again this week. Welcome. Welcome return to the word quasi. Can you just can you just rock off seven cinnamons? Like quasi cinnamons. Cinnamons. <laughs> Muck. Azats. Faux. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's only five I think we did better last time since it sees itself as an art movie we can score it on mood can't we or that's it okay feeling well, or... I did love the essence of yeah Swiss Lugano style yeah low key yeah 1970s that weird lost in time thing all of that was very good that was good wasn't it and I also like the soundtrack especially when he's driving his car uh, you always hear the same music when he does the same trip and you also heard the boards of Canada as well with that uh, that track that appeared in Sinister, uh, the one with the number stations in it. I think that was toward the end. That was also a great bit of um, sound trackage. For all those moody things and that good soundtrack, yeah, this is more like a, a good seven, maybe seven and a half. Right, okay. So in terms of mood, I, you know, I thought, you know, in terms of the styling of this movie... There was an element that everything was presented in a mannerist way. It wasn't that it was art house, but it was presented in an art house mannerist style kind of thing. I think that has to lead me to being dissatisfied with, if you like, the mood of it all. That said, and the incongruous music uh, (laughs) as well, that said, you know, I've got to score it a six because... Generally speaking, I thought it, it communicated its mood quite well. But you said at the start that it was contemporary, so the music isn't 
incongruous. But it's incongruous to the to the, to the sophisticated, mm. lost in a faded yesteryear vibe of the whole movie. It's contemporary techno music, isn't it? Kind of thing. When he went to Milan, it was like the beginning of Suspiria. It was like going back twenty years or something to an airport hotel near the airport. Anyway, that's an interesting observation. I think we can do a an overall score now, can't we? I think we've done our, our bit. Three categories, is that enough? Is that well what what more do we normally do here? What special effects? Science? No, it's enough, yeah. I'm gonna <laughs> score it a six overall. I mean it's it's a it's a fairly decent movie, but I I'm assuming it's gonna be forgotten in the grand scheme of things. Oh, and you don't want to pin a big score on a movie that other people will forget. That's how cult classics are made, Paul. So. It, it is a six movie. Better than average, actually. Better than average, I would say that's true. Not brilliant, though. And if you're bored of smoking or mafia movies, you may not enjoy this. So, Paul, what do we do next week? Don't know. Ah, well, let me give you a suggestion. There was a film called A Field in England... Ah, yes, now I want to watch this. Which is arty enough to put itself in black and white. I didn't know that about it. There's also another film. You kind of of took me up the hill and took me back down again there, Richard. Another film called Brotherhood of the Wolf, which I think might be French, but I'm not sure about that. And what's that about? You don't know. I have no clue. I'm going to go for the first one, if that's okay. I feel in England, because we've talked about this one. I want to watch it. It, it appears to be performed in early middle middle English, so that Ooh. should be interesting. Do we have subtitles? Who knows? We'll find out when we watch it, and we will return for the next episode of Drive-By Cinema. Until then. Bye-bye. Thank you.